Hi, my name is June. I'm an alcoholic and a pill addict. Hi, June. Hi. It's, um, it's nice to be here. I, uh, I didn't particularly want to come this weekend. I've had a lot of <clears throat> problems this week. And, uh, and yet, I guess the God that I believe in uh, takes better care of me than I often would. And as a friend of mine back home said, I really didn't need a meeting this weekend. I needed a convention. And so I'm glad to be here with you all. I, um, I think, you know, I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I'm not, you know, I think about it sometimes. I'm really not much of a joiner. I'm extremely cynical, often even cynical about Alcoholics Anonymous to some extent. And yet, my cynicism just doesn't seem to hold up here. Um, I, uh, I believe in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And oftentimes, I walk into meetings convinced and just decided already that I will not leave there feeling better. I, uh, I've already just decided. I'm not going to let it work. And yet, it, it, all, it all inevitably it does. Uh, probably the, the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous that I take for granted, and I, I didn't realize that I did, is, is the lack of judgment. I mean, there is a certain amount of judgment. We all talk about each other. I mean, we don't take each other's inventories. We just report the facts. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I think, you know, in a sense, there is. There's a tremendous lack of judgment, at least in the meetings themselves. And, uh, and I often forget, and, and I was reminded of it, oh, about, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I was talking to this guy at school. And uh, he was telling me about this movie called The Rose. And he said that it was the story of Janice Joplin's life. And I said, I really didn't know that that was what it was supposed to be about. I had seen the film. And, uh, and he said, you know, all my life I've idolized Janice Joplin. And I said, really? And this kind of surprised me because he seemed like a pretty straight kind of guy. And, uh, and, and he said, yeah. And he said, you know, but there's something about that movie that really bothered me. I said, really, what was that? And he said, well, at this one point in the film, she's about to have an affair with this man that she's just met. And she says to him, I have a confession to make. She said, when I was in high school, I slept with the whole high school football team. And he said, you know, if that's true about Janice Joplin, he said, I just don't know how I could respect her anymore. And I looked at him and I said, you mean you'd hold one football team against a girl? I could tell from the reaction I got that this was something I should definitely not tell my story to. Um, anyway, I, uh, geez, I was thinking uh, today about there's, I guess it's in, in the promises um, that we read a lot back home that uh, it says our whole outlook upon life will change. And, uh, and that's happened for me in the last year. You know, uh, it's real neat to see um, all the people I think that I uh, I know here um, that I have met before. I've met at Ikipa, and uh, I was uh, invited last year, a year ago, to talk there. And a lot of things have um, have happened in my life in the last year, and uh, and a lot of them good. You know, this week I was telling Steve before the meeting, I had a lot of um, of really heavy disappointments that I probably will talk about um, later on in my story. But, you know, they were just, there were a lot of really tragic things that happened in my life for me, some things that were very important to me that, uh, that didn't work out. And, you know, I was telling him, I said, I, when I first got sober, I could take something like that, and I could stretch it out for weeks. You know, I mean, and I had lots, I was, oh, God, I'm so good at self-pity, and I'd just sit there, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to talk on the phone, and I wouldn't want to, you know, talk to anybody. I wanted to think it through myself. And, uh, and, you know, and answer my own questions and, you know, and, uh, and pat myself on the back and how hard I had tried and, uh, and all of this stuff. And I tried that this week. I mean, I, I really did. I was, I had a good reason to be depressed and it was justifiable and I wanted to enjoy it. And, uh, I, I couldn't get it to go for more than a day and a half, you know? Uh, and I can't, I can't believe it. I know. It's really sad. That's about how much sympathy I get back home, too. I, um, I think it's always, it, it really fascinates me. Um, and I suppose this is kind of uh, conceited in a sense, but I, I just, I love being in a meeting in another state. You know, like this afternoon I went to this meeting, and, you know, they were talking, and I knew exactly what they were talking about. You know, I, they, I had the same feelings that they had had. And, uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm halfway across the country from where I live. And somewhere, I guess, in the back of my mind, I just think, you know, California has AA, and I don't know how the rest of you are making it or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, uh... Oftentimes, you know, I had um, a really um, good experience that, uh, that I think about when, uh, when I'm asked to come somewhere that I don't particularly want to go to because, you know, I, I don't want to, because um, I don't want to talk about what's going on in my life, perhaps, 
Or maybe I'm just tired and I think that I do so much and nobody else ever does anything in AA. Or whatever I happen to be thinking that particular day. I remember though, uh, a couple of years ago, or maybe just a year or so, I was invited to go talk at this meeting and it's like a hundred miles away from my house. And it was on a Wednesday and I had to be up early the next morning. And I had to drive, it took me, I had to leave at three and it took me five hours to get there because of LA traffic. And you know, and I was just thinking, you know, this is really three miles beyond any length. And uh, it's just, you know, it's so unfair. And, uh, and what I thought about, though, is I thought about an experience I'd had that day. I had been out to lunch with one of my closest friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, a woman that I got sober with. And um, we came back from lunch to her office, and there was a guy laying across Wilshire Boulevard, which is a major street in Los Angeles, and, uh, and he was obviously intoxicated. Um, and he was laying across the doorway into her office, and he kind of came, too, as we were stepping over him. And... Um, he asked us if we would call um, the VA hospital so that he could admit himself for detoxification or something. I don't know. And uh, and we said sure, you know. And uh, <laughs> excuse me, we asked him if he was a veteran, and he said yes. And I sent her. She went upstairs to call and make sure that he was a veteran. And I stayed down there and talked to him. I was talking to him, and the police drove up. And I thought, oh Christ, you know. And the cops walked up, and uh, I thought, what am I going to say to these guys? You know. And they walked up, and they said, Hi, Walter. <laughs> And he said, hi, Bob. Hi, Sam. I thought, a regular, no less, you know. And uh, and he said, you know, the cops asked me what we were doing. And I said, well, you know, he had asked us to give him a ride and that we were members of Alcoholics Anonymous and we'd be happy to give him a ride. And he said, well, that was good because that's about all they could do, you know, and they'd rather we did it. And so uh, my my friend came down and uh, we, found, uh, we found out he wasn't a veteran, but we took him to this other place he asked us to drive him to and um, that I knew nothing about. But we drove him in there and we walked inside and... Uh, Yes, the guy who interviews people, uh, he said to him, he said, have you ever been here before? And he said, no, I haven't. And um, about five minutes later, the guy came out from the back with this file. <laughs> it was this big, you know, just on this drunk here. And um, he said, Walter, um, do you ever have any trouble when you try and come off alcohol? I mean, do you have any, you know, anything, convulsions or uh, DTs or anything like that? Walter says, nope. He says, he, so, well, Walter says here that the last time you came off, you know, you tried to come off of alcohol, he said that you, you almost died and that we had to rush you to the hospital because of the severe convulsions that you were in. And he said, no, he said, I, I was just faking it, you know. And uh, anyway, the, he, he went back in the back, and I'm not sure why, and he left us alone, and Walter turned to me and he said, they treat me like I'm some sort of an alcoholic or something. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, do I look like an alcoholic? And I said, you know, Walter, I said, to tell you, Clint, in my life, I've never seen anybody who looked more like an alcoholic. <laughs> I said, I mean, we just found you laying across the major street in Los Angeles, you know, drunk. And, uh, and I thought about it, and I thought, God, you know, I mean, the way that, the, the, way that uh, the grandiose illusions of the alcoholic that the book talks about. And anyway, that night, as I was driving along, complaining about how I had to drive through L.A. traffic five hours to get to this meeting, I thought to myself, I thought, I wonder how long it's been since Walter was invited to go 100 miles away and share. And I thought to myself, too, I thought, when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody had invited me anywhere for an awfully long time, except for to leave. And, uh, and I really, you know, um, it really is uh, an honor to be asked to share. Uh, I, uh, and I, I sometimes forget it. I, um, I don't know, you know, um, I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate to, to be here and, uh, and to be sober. I, uh, and I have the gratitude span of an ant. You know, uh, I can walk outside tonight and find a $20 bill. And my first thought, my first thought is usually pretty good. It would be, thank you, Father. But within five minutes, if it took me that long, I'd say, you know, it could have been a hundred. And uh, that's exactly the way I have always been all my life. And that has not changed very much with sobriety. Um, I, um, I think that I was born an alcoholic. I don't particularly care to debate the issue. It's not that important to me. But um, I think that simply because there was something wrong with me before I ever drank or took anything. And um, although I've been to psychiatrists, I, uh, I never told them anything because I thought they should work for their money, and so I don't really know the... Uh... I don't really know the uh, psychological uh, depths of my neuroses. But uh, I, um, it started to manifest itself when I was five years old. And, uh, and the way that it did that was I began at that age to try and kill myself. And uh, that was my first obsession in life. And that was one that never left until, quite a, uh, until a couple of years after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. There was never a day before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I did not ask to die, pray to die, or do something to in some way check out. And I started at that age to cut my wrists and my hands and my fingers with razor blades. I started to take overdoses at that age of baby aspirin. 
Uh, and uh, I started a series of inflicting pain upon myself in absolutely any way that I could think of. And I started to beat my face with a hammer and I did any number of things. And strangely enough, I, I at that time, I'm not, I probably don't to this day, but at that time I had a tremendous tolerance for physical pain. And I would much rather have in, endured hours of physical torture than to have anybody hurt my feelings. Because for whatever reason, I was extremely sensitive as a child. And uh, I could remember going to school and somebody would call me a name, just like everybody gets called a name at some point in their life. And I remember they'd call me a name and I could feel it inside. I could just feel it rip. And I just want to fall apart and start to cry. And I knew enough about living on the streets, even at that age, that you couldn't do that, that you couldn't go ahead and cry and let people know that they were getting to you and that I was weak. And in my life, there's probably nothing I've ever hated more than what I considered to be weak. And I considered myself to be weak. And so at that point, up until after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I began to hate myself. Um, and that hatred never, uh, never diminished. It only grew the longer that I was out there on the streets. And I really don't know again why that began. But I can never remember a day in my life where I liked the way that I looked, where I liked the life that I was living. And most of all, there was never a moment that I liked the way that I was feeling. There was never a time when I was happy, when I was glad to be where I was. I was always miserable. I always wanted to die. And I always hurt really bad inside. And as I grew up, I looked around and I saw two different groups of people. I saw men and women. I was a very bright child. And uh, in my life where I grew up, I noticed that there was a, a very big difference in the way that these two different groups of people handled the same situation. In my life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never saw a man express any emotion except for anger and rage. I never saw a man cry or look hurt in my life. And I took that to mean that you couldn't hurt them, that you couldn't make them cry, that nothing mattered to them, and that the only thing that, that you could ever do was to make them angry. On the other hand, I saw women dealing with the same situations, and I saw them cry, and I saw the pain in their face, and I saw some of them have emotional, you know, and nervous breakdowns. And I was with these two groups of people, and I decided immediately what I wanted to be like. And I spent my whole life trying to emulate men and trying to be like what I thought men were, you know, and uh, because I looked at women as weak, and I didn't want any part of that. Um, I... Uh, when I was a little kid and they said what do you want to be when you grow up I said I want to be a man and uh, they said I couldn't because it wasn't as easy back then as it is now but uh, <laughs> that was the truth you know and uh, I accepted it at that age that I could not be a man and decided to opt for the next best thing which was to be a tough broad and I spent my entire life out there on the streets trying to prove that I was a tough broad you know and I'm extremely grateful that I found alcohol and drugs at the age that I did I found drugs when I was seven years old I found alcohol when I was eight. By the time I was nine, I found my combination, which never changed. It never had to. It worked. And that was barbiturates or reds or yellows or sleeping pills, whatever you might know them as, and alcohol. And I very rarely took one without the other because the combined effect of those got me where I wanted to go. And I didn't want to party. I didn't want to feel good. I just wanted to not feel anything at all. And that's what they did for me. They worked. And, uh, and that's what I used. And, uh, you know, I just uh, I spent my time out there uh, trying to, uh, to, to be tough trying to not care. And the reason I'm so grateful that I found those things is because there was no way that I could go through life feeling as much pain as I was feeling. And uh, I, would have, I would have had to have been locked up. And because I found alcohol and drugs, I was able to put that out for a little while, for the few years that those chemicals worked for me. I, um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, <laughs> I went to any length to prove that I was tough. And I don't know about here in Iowa, but back home uh, in the last maybe three years, Tattoos have become really popular for women. And uh, a lot of my girlfriends, you know, sober in the program have gone out and gotten tattoos, you know, and they get cute little butterflies and panda bears and daisies and all kinds of nice little things like that, you know. And uh, I'm really glad tattoos were not in when I was on the streets because I'd be standing up here tonight, I'd have a shark on my arm, and uh, it would swim when I did this, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> I'd probably have a battleship on my chest, or maybe in my case, a canoe, but um, <laughs> you get the general idea. I, uh, I remember, you know, walking down the streets at Venice Beach, which is where I'm from, and there'd be people watching me, you know, because I was kind of strange looking, which I did on purpose, tough looking, you know, and uh, I remember I'd step on lit cigarette butts with my bare feet when they were watching. And they'd go, oh, you know, it was just fascinating to me. And uh, they just thought they couldn't believe it. And I, was, I thought this was wonderful. There was nothing that made me happier than stepping on a lit cigarette bus with my bare feet. And uh, those were my values, you know. The last time uh, I got my face punched in, which was something that happened fairly often, um, I, uh, although I, I want you to know, I mean, I always picked my fights very carefully.
Never in my life have I been in a fight with one person. You fight with one person and you lose, people think you're a shitty fighter. You know, that's the fact. So you don't do that. What you do is you get in fights with gangs. They gang up on you. They beat you up. Naturally, you lose. How can you win against that many people? And everybody thinks you must be pretty tough or that many people want to jump you. And uh, I uh, I strategically plan these things, and, uh, and that's frequently what happens. The last time that I got beat up, I was beat up by my five best friends. Um, they stopped by my house one night and they said, look, if you come out of the house tomorrow, we're going to beat you up. And I got up the next morning, I got dressed, and I immediately walked out of the house because I was not going to stay in the house and have them think that I was not coming out of the house because I was afraid that they would beat me up. I didn't want anybody thinking that I was afraid of them. I came out of the house and they immediately started to follow me down the street. As I walked down the street, I had a choice. I could take the street or I could take the alley. If I didn't take the alley, I knew that they'd think I didn't take the alley because I was afraid to take the alley because they'd beat me up. And so I took the alley and they beat me up. Now, um, I laid there with the five of them knocking my head into the asphalt and punching me in the face. And for whatever reason, all they wanted that particular day was for me to cry. And again, I, I really don't know why, but that's what they wanted. And I don't know how long they punched me for, but they eventually got bored and left. And when I got up from that fight with my black eye and my swollen lip and blood all over my face, I had won because I didn't cry. And to me, that's what mattered. I did not give them what they want. I didn't let them know that they'd got to me. And so I had won. Now tonight, if somebody wanted to come up and like say, hey, you know, you to cry, I'll punch you in the face, I'd cry. I mean, what's the big deal? Cry a few tears. <laughs> you know, get it over with. I mean, you know, but at that point in time, there was nothing more important to me in the world than having people think that they could not get to me. Um, because that was my philosophy. You don't care about anybody. And if you happen to be weak enough to care, which is exactly what I thought caring had to be, was weak, then you don't let them know it. And you don't let anybody care about you or get too close. And, uh, and those were the, probably the most important things that I, ca- I brought with me into Alcoholics Anonymous, along with all of my misconceptions, at least most have proved to be misconceptions, of what men were like and how men felt, and my still trying to emulate that kind of behavior. Uh, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, um, my mother brought me to the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I ever attended, uh, and uh, that had been a long, long time before I ever uh, had any, had ever even had a drink, because my mother had been in and out of the program 11 years by the time I came to the program. Uh, I, uh, I went to a meeting one night, and uh, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous began to happen for me that night, uh, because there was somebody that was there, and he was sober, and he was somebody that I drank and used with. More important than that, he was somebody that I admired tremendously because he'd been in prison, because he had tattoos, because he carried a knife at all times. And this was just the most wonderful person in the world to me. Um, and he was hostile and people were afraid of him. And, uh, and those were the things that I admired. And I stayed and I talked to him for a little while and then the next night I went out and I got drunk. And then I came back to some meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for about two weeks. And in that two-week period of time, I thought to myself, I'm too young. I have my whole life ahead of me. I have places to go, things to do, people to see. You know, I don't want to be an alcoholic. If there's anything in my life I don't want to be, it's like my mother, because I thought she was weak and disgusting, and I hated her and her alcoholism, and I didn't want to be like that, and I didn't want to be an AA. And every, absolutely every avenue, except for Alcoholics Anonymous, was removed from my life in that two-week period of time. My mother and I were living together at this point, and uh, I had just come back from one of the foster homes I'd been thrown out of, and I hated my mother almost as much as I hated myself. And I had become extremely violent towards her physically. And she didn't feel that she had to tolerate that kind of behavior. And she asked me to leave her home. I did. My family hadn't talked to me in three years at that time and didn't want to. I wasn't allowed to come near their home or call. And uh, I had uh, been in a number of foster homes. And none of them, uh, all of them had asked me to leave. And none of them would take me back. I tried to get into various drug rehab and alcohol recovery homes. None of them would take me, some because of my age, some simply because of my attitude. Uh, I, uh, I already told you what happened to my five best friends. And uh, so I found myself uh, sitting in the Alcoholics Anonymous with absolutely no one to turn to and no place to go and nothing but the clothes that I was wearing. I, um, and, you know, there were some people in the Alcoholics Anonymous where I came in, <coughs> excuse me, who didn't know anything about the traditions. And... Uh, Traditions are very important to all of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, but maybe in a special way uh, to those of us who are young, and to me in particular. Because when I came in in my area, there were some people who, uh, who didn't think that I, was, I belonged. They thought I was too young, and they didn't know about the third tradition, which states that the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And they asked me to leave their meetings because I was too young and not to come back. And to me, I just thought Alcoholics Anonymous was like every place else I'd ever been in my life and that they didn't want me either. And so I left and I did the thing that I always did when uh, something didn't go my way. I went and uh, I went over to a friend of my mother's house and I went into this woman's bathroom, which was the first place I went to anybody's house to see what kind of pills they had. And I found the kind that I wanted and I took an overdose. And then 
I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was in the daytime. I laid in the meeting. Um, I, uh, because of the, the pills that already started to take effect, and I really don't know about um, Iowa meetings, but uh, in West Los Angeles, where I'm from, we very rarely call on anybody to talk who's laying in the meeting. And um, <laughs> they asked me to share, and uh, I have no idea what I said, but the next thing I knew, I was in a hospital, and I was being given medication <clears throat> to make me throw up, and the doctor was explaining to me that the pills I had taken were to slow down my heart. And had I been there maybe five or ten minutes later, I would have been in a coma that they probably couldn't have brought me out of. And I don't know why that overdose was any different than any of the others I inflicted upon myself, and there had been a number of times that I had done that, but I know that it was, because since that time, one day at a time, I haven't taken anything. And uh, one month from today, I'll celebrate my nine-year birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um... I think I know what I said in that meeting, no matter what came out. I think I thought about it, and I think I know what I was trying to say, and it's something that I, I hope I always remember to say in my talk, because I think it's real important for me to say. And what that was is, you know what, I don't know if I've gone as far as some of you people have, and then again, maybe I've gone just a little bit farther than some of you, but I don't really think that's very important, because the point is, I don't have any place left to go, and I don't know if I want what you people have, I don't even know what you have. I just know I can't stand what I've got anymore, and you don't have to tell me if I go back out there on those streets, I'm going to die. Because dying doesn't scare me. Not one damn bit. Dying's what I've been trying to do since I was five years old. What scares me is maybe I can go out there and live for another 20 or 30 years like some of you people have. And that's what I can't stand, is to live that way anymore. So please let me stay. And the people of Alcoholics Anonymous have let me stay. And I've had to do the things that were necessary for me to stay, whatever they might be. I, um, you know, there were still a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, who didn't think that uh, I belonged, who thought I was too young, who'd come up and say things like, you know, kid, I spilled more booze on my tie than you ever drank. And I would just turn to them and say, if you hadn't spilt so much, maybe you would have gotten here sooner. Um, <laughs> I think that for me, uh, and particularly, you know, the longer I stay sober, I'm increasingly more grateful for the people that tolerated me when I first came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I choose the word tolerate very carefully. Um, I'm sure there were people who tried to love me, but I, I made that as impossible as I could when I came into the program. And, you know, it, it's ironic to me because I came into the program with absolutely nothing, absolutely no one in my life and absolutely nothing. I had nowhere to live. I had no food. I had no family and no one. I had the clothes that I had on. I had no shoes. Wouldn't have worn them if I did have them. And uh, that's how I arrived in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there were many people who tried to greet me with open arms and with love that we find so often here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would have no part of it, none whatsoever. And I find that ironic because somebody that came from where I came from, I would think would be so so grateful to find some kindness and some love and some gentleness, and I just couldn't. I didn't want anybody to touch me. I didn't want anybody to get near me. I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I lit every one of them myself. I didn't need anybody. I didn't want anybody lighting my cigarettes. I didn't want anybody opening my doors. I could do it myself. I wanted you to know I could do everything myself. I didn't need you, which is absolutely hysterical because you don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous if you're doing all that well by yourself. Um, I walked in with my uh, giant motorcycle chain on my, uh, on my wrist and my motorcycle jacket, which I embroidered on the back after I'd been sober a couple of weeks, do unto others and then split. I, uh, I wore T-shirts that on the front had sayings that people found very offensive. I went to meetings where they didn't allow profanity and I used it. I also smoked cigars, not ladylike thin cigars, but big cigars, and I carried a pipe at all times. Now, the purpose for all of this behavior was I wanted to keep people away, and I'd like to assure you that there were times I could sit in a meeting and then have an entire row to myself. Um, and that's why I'm grateful for the people who tolerated me the way that I was. You know, uh, my first sponsor was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, uh, he was more hostile than I was, and uh, he would just grab me around the neck and threaten to kill me if I didn't knock it off. And uh, you probably won't find that written anywhere in the big book, but it worked, you know. Um, I understood that. That's where I came from, you know. And uh, I, uh, I don't know, I, I continued along. I remember I was talking to this guy a couple years ago, and I said, God, Jim, we haven't talked in years. And he said, don't you know why? And I said, gee, I really don't. And he said, well, when we were new, we went to this meeting. And after the meeting, a whole group of us went to coffee. And he said, at the coffee shop, I, I said something you didn't like, and you put your cigarette out in my shirt. And uh, I didn't remember doing that, you know. And he said, yeah. And he says, and then on the way home, he said, you slammed the car door on my head. 
And uh, I don't remember doing any of that. And I know all I wanted to do was let him know I liked him. Uh, and uh, that's just the way I was. I mean, if I liked somebody, I insulted him or punched him or something. I mean, that's the only uh, form of communication I knew when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because the thing to a compliment I gave before I came here was that was a good fight. And that's about the nicest thing I ever said. I, uh, I had spent all my life trying to learn how to be sarcastic and rude and extremely sharp-tongued and cynical and able to cut anybody down verbally. And uh, that was something that I admired probably more than anything else. And I didn't, uh, I didn't see any reason to change it when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, except for after I'd been here a while, I found out that there were millions of people who could do that a lot better than I could here in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I am um, probably the... Uh, I'm, I'm real grateful that uh, the people where I got sober, um, I was told to, and probably for the first time in my life listened to some direction, to get active in Alcoholics Anonymous and to try, as I went through in my sobriety one day at a time, to never say no to anything that I was asked. And that's something that uh, I've tried to make a foundation of my program in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and it's been real good for me, uh, being active. <clears throat> it's helped me to feel part of and... Uh, and to try and give back some of the, uh, the things that, all of the things that are in my life, because nothing is in my life today except for as a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I remember, you know, they told us to get the big book when I was new, and they said, if you don't have enough money, you can make credit arrangements. If you're too afraid to talk to us, steal it. Uh, I, uh, I had been stealing since I was five years old, uh, and uh, I saw absolutely no reason to change here in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I thought that if I stole the big book from an AA meeting, it would jinx my sobriety. So I went down to the library in Santa Monica, and I stole the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and uh, while I was there, I picked up a copy of the 12 and 12, no sense making two trips. And uh, I never felt guilty. You know, the library had lots of books. And uh, I thought that was okay. Anyway, after I'd been sober a few years, I realized that that was uh, something that I needed to make amends for, along with the 50 other books I'd stolen since I was six years old that I still had in my closet, including great classics like Misty the Seahorse. And uh, <clears throat> I loaded up these books and I took them down to the local librarian and I explained to her that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and that it was necessary for my sobriety to return these books and I'd like to make payments because, you know, they want three to five cents a day. I'd had some of the books 11 years. And uh, she said, well, that's fine, you know, and knowing, of course, I knew that nobody else in Alcoholics Anonymous had ever sunk so low as to steal Misty the Seahorse. And uh, she said to me, you know, it's really funny. She said, I used to work at this library in Laguna Beach. She said, and this man came in. He'd had this book for 35 years. He said the same thing you just said. She said, you guys must do this all the time. And, uh, I learned a lesson, which I'm very quick to forget, that, that there's nothing that I have done or thought about doing that somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't already th- done or thought about doing. I, um, I don't know. I, um... I finished seventh grade before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I came to the program, I, uh, I refused to go to school, although there were uh, some people who tried to, to help me to get back in. I just, I refused. I was completely unwilling, uh, and in a sense, completely unable, and I'm not sure which one uh, countered the other, but I was un- unable completely to deal with people, uh, and, and it, was, it, it was only a pe- place like Alcoholics Anonymous that could have tolerated the way that I was and the behavior that I... Uh, that I manifested. I, uh, I, I was extremely uh, sensitive, having just gotten sober. I, uh, I didn't think anything was funny. I didn't like to be teased at all. I saw no humor at all in being teased. And uh, it's really funny because uh, a large percent of the friends that I have today uh, are always telling me that one of the things that they love about me the most is my sense of humor. And that's a gift from Alcoholics Anonymous. It's probably the thing that, uh, that is uh, mandatory for all my friends uh, to have is a sense of humor. And uh, most of them have an extremely sick sense of humor and an ability to laugh at the tragedies in my life. And uh, that's what I need. <laughs> okay. I am... Um, I went back to school after I'd been sober a couple of years. I got an opportunity to go to a business college and learn how to be a secretary. And I have to tell you, if there's anything in my life I never wanted to be, that was it. I, uh, I never wanted to be a secretary. I never wanted to be square. I never wanted to be a lady or wear a dress or uh, anything pink. Uh, I, uh, I still have one pink thing in my closet. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just getting there. Uh, I, um, or maybe I never, I don't think I ever will. I just don't like pink. But um, I... Uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to be in that, I mean, I wanted to be a hooker. That's what I wanted to be. And uh, that's what I'd always wanted to be. I wanted to be tough. 
and uh, I wanted to be like I thought men were and not care and uh, and think that sex was something that uh, didn't really matter and it didn't matter who they were or where they came from or what you did. It just kind of didn't matter. And that's how I wanted to be. And uh, it was uh, increasingly hard in sobriety and it's gotten harder the longer that you stay sober to try and keep up that kind of uh, of an attitude, uh, and uh, which I found that none of the men I know have. You know, I don't know where I got it from. Uh, I guess maybe John Wayne and he's dead and uh, I don't know. But um, I... Uh, Anyway, I got a chance to be this secretary, and I decided to try it. And I started out doing all right. I was, uh, <laughs> I started out typing 17 words a minute with nine errors. And uh, I stayed at this school. I typed one day at a time for 14 months. And at the end of that time, I was typing 37 words a minute with 19 errors. <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. And I couldn't either. And they asked me to take a test, which if I passed would give me an equivalent of a high school diploma, since it was kind of hard to, uh, to get any kind of a job with a seventh grade education. And I took this test, and the first five, well, there's five different areas, and the first four were pretty easy. Not easy, but they were, you know, I understood them. And the fifth part was math. And I thought they'd start out with addition and subtraction, because that's all that I knew. And then they, they started out with algebra. And then they started doing things that I couldn't even pronounce, let alone do. I mean, I remember they had a rectangle, and then they drew a line across it to make two triangles, and they wanted to know how many feet were in one of those triangles. I started drawing little pictures of feet. I mean, <laughs> I have no more idea tonight how you find that out than I did then. I don't understand. I don't know what that is. And uh, most of the answers on the test were either A, B, C, or D. And so I closed the test, and I was at the bargain stage of my sobriety. I said, look, God, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to go through this test, and I'm going to pick lots of A's, you know, for AA. And I hope you know your math. And uh, <laughs> I'm here to let all of you know tonight that God is as bad at math as he is at typing. <laughs> but somehow we managed to pass this test. And, uh, and then I had to go out and look for a job. And that was... Uh, for me one of the hardest uh, things that I, uh, I had to experience up to that point in my sobriety because I had to go out there in the citizen type world and I didn't know anything about the citizen type world. I hadn't been out of my jeans and sweatshirts and t-shirts yet. I, uh, I didn't know anything about makeup or uh, how often you were supposed to uh, take showers or wash your hair because nobody had ever told me those kind of things. I didn't know how to dress and go out there. And on the probably the deepest thing was that I knew I was a dirty little Venice broad. I'd known that from for an awful long time. I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't want to look in any mirrors because I knew what I was and I knew where I came from and I knew what I'd done. And I knew that there's no way you could change those things. They'd already happened. And I knew that there was no way that I or anyone else could ever forgive me for what I'd done and, and where I had been. And I only hoped, as I stayed sober, that the feelings that I, the hatred that I felt for myself might just get a little bit better. That maybe someday I'd be able to take a shower and when I washed myself, I wouldn't feel like throwing up because of what I was and because it just made me sick to see what I was and to touch myself and feel what I was. And that's all I hoped for as I stayed sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And up until that point, I, I still had those feelings to a very large extent, although they'd gotten better a little bit. And this time I had to go out there and buy some clothes and dress up like a citizen. For me, it was like Halloween. You know, here's a little Venice bride dressed up like a citizen going out there in the world. And that's what I did. And I went out there and uh, it was horrible. It was horrible. I can't, I don't, there's no other uh, adjective to define. I, I looked at these people and I knew I wasn't as good as they were. I wasn't good enough to stand on their carpets feeling their air conditioning in their nice offices. I'd never been in places like that in my life. And, uh, and yet they told me to do the footwork in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did. I, I went and tried. And, uh, I, uh, I don't know, I, I got a job. I couldn't believe it. It was an insurance company. I mean, how square can you get? I was thrilled. And uh, on the seventh day, they called me in the office. I thought they were going to give me a raise. And they fired me. Uh, said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. Said that you don't seem to have um, enough experience. And she said, not only that, dear, you don't seem to have any common sense. And uh, I didn't even know what that was, you know, but I knew I'd been insulted. And uh, I went across the street and I called the Los Angeles Central Office. And I said, hi, this is June. I'm a member, sober one, and I just got fired. What are you going to do about that? You know, I thought we'd pick it. And uh, <laughs> they just laughed like you guys did and sent somebody over to pick me up. I mean, in my sobriety, I had never heard of anybody getting fired sober. You know, and I called my sponsor and I told him I never got fired before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he reminded me I'd never had a job. And uh, <laughs> sponsors are very important, you know. I... um Anyway, now I've been fired and I had to go out and look for another job. I found myself one day filling out an application in a bank, which I thought was absolutely hysterical. <laughs> I was stolen from every place I'd ever been in my life. And I, uh, I was thrown out this part and it said, due to the fact that as a bank employee, it's necessary that you be bonded, we're going to do a thorough background check. And I thought, oh no, not me. I don't want anybody looking into my background. First of all, I call one library and I've had it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> 
and I don't know, something made me turn in the application anyway. And I got hired to work in a bank. And I didn't just get hired. They put me to work in the vault. And I didn't even know if the program worked that good, you know. But it, <laughs> but it did. I didn't take anything the whole time that I was there. And uh, I ended up getting laid off. And, uh, and when that happened, I, um, I decided I wanted to go back to school. And I don't know why. And uh, neither does anybody else. Nobody can remember. But I did. And uh, I went back to school. And uh, I was able for the first time in my sobriety to do something other than stay sober one day at a time, and that was to go to school one day at a time. I hadn't been very good at doing that with work. I, I did it eight, you know, 40 hours a week and, you know, how many weeks and when's the next paycheck, you know, and uh, I just couldn't do it. You know, that I, I don't know, maybe I hadn't been sober long enough or I'm not sure. But with school, I was able to. I was able to go to my classes every day and to come home and do my homework every night and then go to a meeting every night of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it just kind of worked out for me. And at the end of... Uh, two years I graduated from college with what they called an AA degree which I thought was apropos and uh, I, I couldn't believe it I mean I, I didn't ever expect to graduate from college I didn't even want to graduate from college when I came to the program and uh, I was accepted at a, a university and uh, I decided that I wanted to continue and uh, and I did and last year in June I graduated from that university with my bachelor's degree and again this is something that I never planned it was something I never even wanted and then somewhere along in my life and again, I don't remember when or why. I had a dream, and uh, I was told always in Alcoholics Anonymous to go ahead and try and do the footwork for any dreams that I had, and I did. And uh, last year, oh, I think right before Ikipa, I, uh, I received a telegram uh, telling me that uh, a couple of thousand people had applied to UCLA's School of Law, and unfortunately they could only accept 400, but that I had been chosen as one of those. And... I couldn't believe it, and I still can't. I mean, I always plan on spending a lot of time in court, but never on that side of the table. <laughs> I am... Um, and that's, you know, um, that's what I've been doing uh, for the last year. And, uh, Steve, can you hand me my water, please? Thanks. I, um, that's what I've been trying to do one day at a time for the last year. And it's been very, very hard uh, for me. I, um, I don't know... I, the first semester, I, uh, I was sure that I couldn't do it, and I wasn't even able or willing to try because I knew I wasn't that smart, and I knew I wasn't as smart as they were. And there was such a, there was a big difference, you know, in our background. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember like most of them, you know, they would, uh, whenever we'd talk about a case, they'd raise their hand and they'd say, well, when I worked for a pharmacy, we did such and such. And another one would raise, well, when I worked for Workman's Comp, we did such and such. And we were doing this case on prostitution, and I was so tempted to raise my hand. Well, when I used to turn tricks, we did... <laughs> but I couldn't do it. They were, already <laughs> they were already too blown away, as it was. But anyway, uh, and the first semester was really, it was difficult. And I got my grades, and they weren't that good. They were average which for me was different. I was used to being at the top because I'd worked really hard, and, uh, and this time I wasn't at the top. I was in the middle, <laughs> definite middle. And I was much harder on myself, as always, than any of my friends were in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want anybody to know my grades. I didn't want to tell any of my friends. I knew I had failed everyone, and everyone loved me anyway. Uh, and, uh, and then the second semester, I decided that, uh, that I really wanted to be there and that, uh, that God had put me there for some reason and, uh, and that I was going to just try and do my best one day at a time. And although there were some different periods of time where I, uh, I changed my mind and tried to back out or, uh, or got scared, I kind of did try and do that. And uh, last week I got my grades and I did even worse. And uh, I, um, I failed the first class I've ever failed in my life. And uh, I don't know yet the consequences of that. I've got to do, <clears throat> I've got to go to school on Monday and find out. But um, again, you know, um, I found that... Uh, I'm always the hardest on myself, but nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, even in my family uh, stopped liking me because I wasn't uh, at the top of my class. I, uh, I was depressed and scared, I guess, because it's something that, uh, that I would like to do and that, uh, I don't know, I, just, I thought that was what I was supposed to be doing and maybe it still is. I'm not going to quit, but um, sure put a little, took a little wind out of my sails. But um, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing, and uh, I'm not sure why God put me there. But I'm sure there is some reason. I um, and you know, and then uh, I think that there's one other area that's uh, that's real important for me to talk about. Um, 
And then I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to talk about that for a little while and then I'm going to sit down. And that's relationships. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you were already at the meeting today about um, the sex panel and, and heard uh, two people share uh, very well on the, those subjects. But I don't know. Um, I need to talk about it a little bit, too. I uh, I came to the program about Hawks Anonymous Single, and uh, and I've been that way since I've been here. And if you do that, you're uh, bound sooner or later to have to date. Um, it, it just happens that way. And uh, after looking for a job, dating is the thing that I uh, think I hate more than anything else. Uh, I would much rather fall in love and uh, generally do. I'm the type of person that on the way to the coffee pot, I'll see him and uh, fall in love. And if tomorrow night he comes to the meeting with another girl, I think he's being unfaithful. And... Uh, <laughs> That's the way I am, you know. But if you stay sober for a while, you'll probably go out, like I said, on a date. And if it's somebody in AA, it'll probably be an AA date. And uh, I don't know if you guys have those here in Iowa. An AA date, that's where he picks you up and he takes you to a meeting. I mean, where else would you go? And uh, after the meeting, he takes you to coffee and you talk about the meeting. And uh, by the time he takes you home, you don't know whether to kiss him goodnight or say the Lord's Prayer. And... Uh, You guys do have those, but uh, anyway, I remember one night I was on one of my AA dates. You know, we were at the coffee stage of our date, and he said, "You know, I really like you." And I said, "Well, thank you." He says, "I really like you a lot." And I said, "Well, thank you very much." He said, "But I like your girlfriend at the other table better. Do you mind if I go sit with her?" I said, "Well, I know, not at all." And he did, and I went home and started writing an inventory. I thought maybe the steps would help, you know. And uh, that didn't seem to make me feel any better, so I went down the next day. I, I sat up all night and thought it over, um, which is extremely dangerous if you're like me. And uh, I made my decision, and I got up the next morning and. Uh, I went down and tried to join the United States Air Force. I figured, screw them, you know. And uh, the Air Force wouldn't take me, and then I called my sponsor. That's what you do right after the Air Force won't take you, you call your sponsor. <laughs> and I told my sponsor. I told him the whole sad story. I told him, absolutely everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous has a relationship but me. It's not fair. I go to meetings. It's like Noah's Ark. Everybody's arriving in pairs, you know. And uh, I just can't stand it anymore. And he told me. He said, you know, Jim, he said, I want you to know that someday you're going to meet Prince Charming. And he said, uh, he may even be riding on a white horse. But the problem is, before you meet Prince Charming, you have to kiss a lot of toads. And uh, I don't know. That works for me. I put that sign up in my house, and it works. And every time I get my heart broken, I think, just another toad on the lily pad of life. And uh, keep moving on, you know. I... Um, and then, you know, uh, there were still times, you know, everybody in AA, I mean, you know, back home and probably out here, too, they always say, when you don't care, it'll happen. You know, when it doesn't matter, then you'll find somebody. So I'd go home and I'd tell God, you know what, I don't care. <laughs> I like being alone. I like it this way. And that doesn't work, you know. Um, <laughs> and then I'd read the 12 and 12. And you'd think, God, you know, what a, what a program, you know. But not the part I found, naturally. I found a part in the 12 and 12 where it talks about relationships. And it says in there, um, let's see, how does it start? It says, well, many of our, um, our members come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and of course their relationships are in tatters because of their drinking, but if they stay sober and try and work the program, they're able to have reconciliations with their spouses. And you think, terrific! And it says, now some of these members are unable to have reconciliations, but they go on and meet other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if both of these people have a firm spiritual foundation in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we found that these relationships can be very successful too. And you think, all right! You know, and then it says, however. <laughs> There are those of us who are meant to give our lives to service and be alone here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you think, oh, Christ, <laughs> why me? You know? But I've learned a lot about acceptance here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my best friend, you know, she's shared the same kind of story I have. And we've talked it over and we've decided to go into service. And we're going to open up a 12-step house in Los Angeles for men. And... Uh, <laughs> Send Steve some flyers. I, uh, I um. Anyway, I uh. I got um. When I, I although I I joke and it's um thank God I do because uh, like I think it was uh, Tally that said it today you know that something that serious uh, have to uh, to be joked about but um I I think that uh, I still came in I know I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with um. Never, un completely unwilling to change my ideas about men and how they were, and also completely unwilling to quit emulating them in the way that I thought they were. And so I, uh, I tried to uh, not care here in Alcoholics Anonymous, to not get close, to never let anybody matter to me, and I tried to maintain all of these um, different feelings and never letting anyone know that I cared. I, uh, and when I was about, I think six years sober, I, uh, I got weak and started to care about somebody. It was just horrible. 
And uh, I just couldn't stand it, you know. I, I'd never done that, and he knew I cared. It was just horrible. And after 30 days, he left me for a younger woman. And uh, at that time, I think I was 19, and that really hurts when you're 19 uh, to be left for a younger woman. But um, I... Uh, I don't know, and that's when I started to see my ego and how many of my old ideas I'd held on to. Because I remember right after uh, he dumped me, I was invited to uh, read something at a conference at home. And at this particular conference, there were uh, 3,000 people in the audience, and I was supposed to stand up and read something out of the big book. And uh, I stood up there, and I started to read. And I'd been, um, I don't know how long we'd been broken up, but I'd been in a lot of pain. And I hadn't called my sponsor, and I hadn't told any of my friends, and I certainly wasn't going to let him know that he had hurt me or anyone else. I didn't want anybody to know that, uh, that I had cared about somebody that dumped me. Uh, my ego was just uh, too important at that point. And I stood up there, and I started to read, and I started to cry. And they weren't little cute little gratitude tears. You know, they were like snorts and everything. It was just horrible. In front of 3,000 people. And the most horrible thought of all occurred to me. He might be there. He might know, you know, that I was crying over him publicly. This was just unbearable. And somebody came up to me right after the meeting and gave me the perfect out. And I couldn't believe it, but I took it. I just couldn't believe I did, but I just grabbed onto it. And she said, those speakers really moved me too, you know. And uh, I had never thought of that one, and I hung on to that. And I told everybody how much the meeting had moved me and the whole thing, you know. Because I didn't want anybody to know that... uh, that I could care and that somebody could hurt me. And what happened was after a year of not giving up this pain, because I knew if I gave up the pain that I would meet somebody else and get hurt again, and I was never going to let that happen. I was never going to get hurt again. I was never going to forgive God for taking this person out of my life. I was never going to forgive everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous who would lied to me and told me there would be somebody for me. Uh, and uh, I was real angry, and I was unable to pray for the first time in my sobriety, and eventually for the first time in my sobriety I wanted to drink, and that had never happened to me before. And I came to a place in my sobriety where I had to make a decision, which I suppose all of us have to make at some point or another, and I hope that if you're new, you don't wait as long as I did, or that you don't have to wait as long as I did. I, uh, and what I did was uh, I came down to, to, the, to, to the facts. And that was that if I wanted to continue to be the person that I had always admired, that I had always wanted to be, and that was someone who did not care, who was not in my mind weak, who uh, who didn't get hurt ever, and who was never vulnerable, if I wanted to be that person, that I could, that I was perfectly capable of being that person, but that the only way that I was capable of being that person was if I drank and used. And if I didn't want to drink and use, that I was going to have to be the person that Alcoholics Anonymous was slowly changing me into. And that was... That transition for me is and was one of the scariest things that I ever I've ever gone through because in a sense I'm becoming or am to some extent all the things that I've always hated. I'm sensitive. I get my feelings hurt. I cry easy. I'm vulnerable. I mean I hated all that crap, you know. And that's really the way I'm becoming, you know, or am. Uh, and there's been a major change, you know, as I was saying about that, you know, my whole outlook upon life has changed because up until that point in my sobriety, most of the people in my life were still tough. You know, you still couldn't hurt them. Most of the men that I dated in my life were still tough. You couldn't get to them. I could never have hurt them because that was what I thought men were still. And those were the people that I only, that I attracted to myself. Because I learned that there's absolutely no way that you can go ahead and not be vulnerable and that, that anybody vulnerable will want to have anything to do with you. At least that was my experience. That if you're going to be invulnerable, that those are the, the only invulnerable people would want to be around you. And so I decided to, to go ahead and give it Alcoholics Anonymous in your way our way a try and become the person that I'm becoming whatever that might be and uh, most of the things that I've become or am becoming are things that, that I like today and that are real important to me and that I never thought would be and all the people in my life today are almost all of them I think are, uh, are extremely gentle people and they're all very kind and I could hurt all of their feelings not that I'd want to necessarily but I could I've seen all of them cry just about and I know that they all have feelings and that they care about themselves about me about other people and uh, and I don't think that they're weak anymore I no longer and I never really did think other people were weak just myself when I manifested that kind of behavior like crying and being hurt and uh, right before um, oh I don't know not too long after I made this decision for myself I became involved with somebody and uh, we became engaged and I'd never done that we got engaged on Valentine's Day which is so romantic, God. And uh, five days later, he left. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And I never saw him again. And uh, it was not too long after that that I had to go to Ikipa and uh, and to share. And when they first called me to go, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to stand up there and talk about how uh, I'd been dumped again 
and how much it hurt and how I was, uh, I don't know, seven and a half, almost eight years sober and that I was in pain. Because somewhere in my mind, I just thought that, you know, after a certain period of sobriety, you're not supposed to get upset anymore or have bad days, you know, and you have this uh, kind of an image that you have to carry on around here or the newcomers will think the program doesn't work or something. I don't know, you know. Uh, but it finally, it occurred to me right before I went to Ikipas that for me, and probably for all of you too, if the day ever comes that I can't come to Alcoholics Anonymous and tell you how I feel and how bad I hurt or how much I want to drink or how bad things are in my life, that I'm in a lot of trouble because there isn't any place else I can go. I don't know about any of you, but there's no place else where they want to hear that. They don't want to hear that at law school. When I go there and I tell them I want to drink, they have a drink, I'll buy you one. I mean, they don't understand. You know, and uh, and Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place that uh, I've ever found that understands that sort of thing. I um anyway um in the uh, I got over that experience much faster than I had the last one because I was willing to go ahead and feel the pain for the first time, and because something really fascinating happens to me in my life. Another one of my neurotic little things that I've always done is whenever somebody's left me or hurt me, I've always gone and stood in front of a mirror and I've looked at myself and I've said, No wonder they left. Look at you. Look at what you are. Look at what you've been and what you've done. And you wonder why they left? You should be lucky that they stayed that long, that they could tolerate you for that long. And this time I went and I looked in the mirror after this, my fiancé had left. And I said the same things I'd always said. And it just didn't work anymore. Because I, I looked at myself and I knew for the first time in my life that he'd lost something too. Not that we were supposed to be together, because we're not. I, uh, it was just that... Uh, It was just that today I had something uh, to give. I um, I like myself today most of the time. There aren't as many days. As a matter of fact, there's very few days where I, I feel anywhere near the kind of hatred that I walked into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with for myself. I, uh, I've even had times uh, where I liked being me exactly as I was, where I didn't want to be blonde and I didn't want to be stacked and I didn't want to be anywhere else with anyone else. And most of all, I've even had days where I wanted to feel just like I was feeling. You know, and li- be living the life that I was living. I, um, and that's a long way uh, from where I came from. I, uh, I sometimes go back down to Venice, and uh, well, oftentimes because that's where my home group is, and I work near there. But sometimes I go and I kind of ask around about the people that I used to drink and use drugs with. And uh, as far as I've been able to find out, there isn't anybody, any of the women that I drank or used drugs with that isn't dead or locked up in an institution or hooked on heroin and turning tricks to support her habit. And although a lot of those women have boyfriends, and I don't, I don't really envy them, since most of the men that they live with beat them up on a regular basis. And usually they live in a house that doesn't have the lights, the gas, and the phone on all at the same time. And they don't have very much furniture, and there are a lot of cockroaches that crawl around their apartment. And I know that, because that's where I came from. That's where I grew up. That's where I'm supposed to be tonight. That's where people like me, dirty little Venice bras, end up. And that's where we're supposed to be. And I don't believe that God likes me any better than he likes them. I don't believe that God thinks I'm any prettier or certainly any smarter than he thinks that they are. I believe that the only difference between me and them is a program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you. I'd like to thank you for inviting me. And if you're new, please keep coming back and give yourself a chance to find out what living is all about instead of just surviving.